Welcome to the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Helen Brocklebank. Helen is the CEO of Walpole, the official sector body for UK luxury. Founded in 1992 as a not-for-profit organisation, it counts more than 250 British brands in its membership and is recognised as the voice of British luxury. Walpole's purpose is to promote, protect and develop a sector with £48 billion to the UK economy and the jewel in the crown of UK business. Helen is prolific in her support for all things British and all things luxury. In addition to supporting and promoting some of the most internationally recognisable British brands, she's also a champion for education and the role of women in the boardroom. Helen, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Sean. It's a real privilege to be with you. I appreciate that. Today we are going to talk a bit about luxury, but I wanted to firstly start with you. So if you could just tell us a bit about yourself, how you started. Sure. Well, I um, I mean, I haven't always worked in luxury. It was not really, um, wasn't really an ambition of mine, although it does, when I think back on it, it does make sense. So my most of my career has been built in the publishing world, in, uh, in on media brands, and actually in the last probably in the last 15 years, those have been uh, what we might call, you know, the luxury, luxury magazines. So Harper's Bazaar and Esquire and Elle and, you know, that, that kind of thing. So I had a really, really good, uh, before I came to Walpole, a really good, strong uh, knowledge of all the luxury brands. Um, so I'd meet the CEOs and the marketeers and the creatives. And so that was really, really helpful before coming to Walpole. But I also think I kind of, thinking how did I get here I think about my grandmother who was who was really fabulous and very much was probably she died a while ago because she was born in 1905 but she always had very beautiful things she wasn't wealthy but she had incredible taste so she had a beautiful hat and a beautiful coat and always had a you know cashmere jumper and she was very fond of Chanel number five so so in a way that when I from a tiny child I was versed in things that were beautiful and that she found really precious and I think about that now and I think actually that's where the seeds of my interest in and love of the luxury business were were kind of sown with that uh, rather glamorous grandmother. It's interesting because um, it, it, I come from a, a kind of similar background with my parents kind of loving the best kind of whether it's clothing or handbags or whatever it might be and I rem- I was saying to somebody else the other day that when I was I think I must have been 12 or 13 I remember my father taking my mother to Yves Saint Laurent we lived in Brussels um, taking my mother to Yves Saint Laurent to buy a dress and that's always stuck with me yeah. the generations I suppose that preceded us where things had a different kind of value to them I think that kind of the thing that was is because it comes a special experience doesn't it that visit to the mm-hmm. the store and the mystique and the magic and the um hallowed names and all those things you know and I don't think it is I mean my you know my grandparents were definitely not you know we're not well off when I mean, they were not well off people I mean they were just you know they're kind of fairly ordinary but that idea of the of wanting something really special um, and then becomes quite magic. Those things become enchanted objects, don't they? That's right. And, you know, another thing I just kind of remembered, I was talking to Olga Baluti, you know, who, who, was, who ran Baluti for many years, and she was saying, you know, it's not about the price of anything. And she was saying that a pair of shoes 
the best pair of shoes is the pair you wear forever and continuously repair. Yes. And I thought that was really telling that, you know, there's somebody who prides herself in craftsmanship and materials and quality. And she's saying what you need to do is look after things. But I think that's the essence of luxury. And I'm sure that we'll talk about this later on because you should, you know, I mean, there's a lovely Hermes video that you can find on YouTube, which is uh, luxury is that which can be repaired. And, you know, that's absolutely the essence of it. You know, a luxury thing is not a disposable thing. It should be a treasured object that can be endlessly repaired and loved forever and then maybe passed on, whether it's a, you know, I don't know, a, a watch or a shoe or even a kind of, even just a cashmere jersey. I mean, Churchill's shoes will infinitely repair your your shoes for you. My husband's got shoes from 1985. <laughs> They're still in really good nick because he's looked after them. Um, or my and my father had some suits made for him in the 1950s, which he wore until he died. So uh, you know, you look after these things, and they look after you. And I think that's that's interesting. The well, the um, the Hermes video has got some. There's a lovely quote in it. There's when we receive an object for repair. These are the artisans that repair the kind of the Birkins and the. Um, uh, so when we receive an object for repair, it bears traces of life of its past. And when our artisans repair it, they heal it. Oh, I mean, isn't that just the loveliest thing you've heard? And I think these enchanted objects do inherit something. You know, they do have they do end up with souls. You know, they become talismans of things of memories, like you, you know, you with your uh, mum and dad in the uh, in the East Saint shop. Don't get me started, Sean, because I'll be here forever. No, I think that. I mean, I think that's right. It's the patina, isn't it, of all the of all these things? You know, in whatever guise that patina manifests itself. Um, I wanted to ask you really about, um, just going back to where we started, just about you. And this, our first series for the Luxury Podcast is focusing on formidable women. And I was wondering what you thought about that and kind of what you think it takes, what are the qualities that one would look for? Well, look, I'd love to be seen as a formidable woman. That sounds amazing. I think that women that women that I I'm lucky enough to work with, and there are amazing women in the luxury sector, and some of them you'll uh, you'll have on this series. They are determined and passionate and creative, and they're not people that are easily swayed. They will you know keep going on, and I think that's a really the ability to keep on going and to um, adapt and to be creative enough to change when circumstances change, but kind of stay true to your kind of mission and your goals and your your vision I suppose is you know it's super it's super super important it's that kind of determination and I think um when I think about my job I'm very very passionate about about the brands that we have in the Walpole membership they're all extraordinary businesses so the privilege and responsibility is you know it turns into an absolute passionate commitment to putting them to you know to kind of promoting them, I suppose, or to kind of giving them the recognition that they deserve. And that was a very woolly answer, Sean. I'm really sorry. But I think it's about I think it is about uh, passion, resilience, determination, and creativity, and those things, and a single-mindedness, and that's maybe a bloody mindedness too. And there's your formidable bit. Yeah, and that's I mean that's amazing because what I, I I did notice about the Walpole kind of um, the board is that it is all women. Yes, we have an all-female team. I mean, completely by accident, actually. It's not really. We're only a small. We're a small team. There's um, there's nine of us all together. So, but they are all they are all women. But when we recruit again, men welcome. <laughs> 
Um, and do you think that is, is the, you know, is that a sign of the times? I wonder. I don't. I don't know. I mean, there are really amazing, uh, amazing women that I come across every day. One of the things that we we have as part of the work of Walpole is a, a kind of hothouse for new luxury brands. So those coming through, you think of luxury as being very, you know, kind of very ancient brands. I mean, like Lock & Co has been around since 1676 and Fall Mason since 1707 and Wedgwood since uh, 1759. So there are lots of really ancient brands. But actually about half of British luxury brands were founded in the last 50 years. So it's really, it's a, it's a business that regenerates itself. And we help that along the way with Brands Tomorrow. Sorry, large, long prologue to say that so many of those um, brands are founded by, the new brands are founded by women. So it is a sector that likes, that I think women can find it easy to work in. And maybe the Warpole gender mix in the team is really you know, kind of reflects that. But also we're a non-profit organisation. So I mean, you do tend to get, um, they do tend to have a bit of a female bias for some reason. I mean, that kind of, you know, I, th- I think naturally kind of, brings us to a question of diversity, doesn't it? Because, you know, we often the conversations you have around creativity and around luxury are issues around diversity. And, you know, you've just said that brands that have kind of emerged within the luxury context um, are now led predominantly by women. What about the other groups who of um, potential or aspiring kind of makers, designers, um, how did they get their foot in? Because it seems like a very contained world, doesn't it? I think I think it's less I think it's less contained than it looks like. I think from the outside it feels like this little uh, kind of rarefied bubble, but actually it's always had a very a much more diverse, particularly on the creative side. Actually, uh, a much more diverse uh, energy. If you think about um, uh, kind of you know, for, I mean, fashion particularly. I think from a board point of view, kind of a uh, top, um, the business point of view, the sector has also been doing some real, real work. Not recent, I mean, like not started, it hasn't just started. I mean, it's been going on for quite a long time around um, diversity and around inclusion, because these are businesses that um, want to be the best, you know, and they're, the fact they're operating this sector means to their customers, at least they are representing the best. And if you want to be the best, then you need to be, then you know, that, what does that mean these days? It actually means that you absolutely have to be very conscious about what you're doing to be uh, inclusive and also how you how you live your values. If you want people to value you, then you have to have as an organisation really clear and really good and really appropriate values. I One of the things that we did at Walpole at the, actually the beginning of this year, which feels like well, the beginning of 2020, I should say, it's like 100,000 years ago now, was to um, to kind of write some of that down. So we, we kind of, we created the British Luxury Sustainability Manifesto. And that is how, what kind of world do we want to live in? So some, some of those uh, goals are, of course, about the, about the kind of, about the planet, it's about carbon, about waste, those things. But a really important pillar of that is about the people. So what goals are we working towards? So it's having, um, 50% of people from non from underrepresented groups actually which does include women at senior management level and we started when I arrived at Walpole it seemed really clear to me that whilst I'd come from a very female environment in magazines actually the senior management in in luxury was still quite male 
it's quite a new it is quite a new industry in some weird way I mean the kind of luxury really took off about 15 16 years ago so some of that is a legacy issue but you had really really good policies being put in place at senior level and yet somehow uh, women were still struggling to get to the you know kind of those um, executive and non-executive you know and kind of board and board roles um, we were we did a survey just after I joined Walpole and we had about 30 percent. Uh, of women, of, you know, thirty percent of the C-suite in British luxury—that's a better way of putting it—were female. So actually, compared to the city or to law or to lots of other things, that's not too bad. But it was really clear to me that we had to do a lot to accelerate that that goal. So and put in place that fifty-fifty, that gender parity goal by twenty twenty-five. So um, and then put, you know, how do we make that work within the community? So you've got to set yourself those goals. I mean, that's really interesting, and I was just wondering if. You know, women are in these positions of leading co- corporations. Um, if we don't, if we see it enough, um, because I had no idea that so many women, or I had little idea that so many women were so kind of prominent in sustaining a field of expertise um, in the areas of kind of um, their kind of creativity, for example. And look, so maybe we need to do much more work at blowing our own trumpets. But there's some really, I mean, some of the really, the women that inspire, so Christina Blanick, who runs Manolo Blahnik, is amazing. Firstly, she holds the, you know, the kind of the torch for her unbelievable uncle, Manolo Blahnik. I mean, for any woman, the kind of plus ultra of the, of the shoe. I mean, you want a, I mean, a wardrobe full of Manolo Blahniks, be still my beating heart. But she's fantastic. She's very creative. She's got a background in architecture. But she's made that business go completely global. She's launched a whole new men's range. I mean, she's really extraordinary. Or someone like Whitney, who's a new brand from uh, Whitney from Hawkins from um, Flowerbox, which is a you know, I don't you know, you know Flowerbox, fabulous high end, very tech driven uh, floristry brand. Um, was it Tom Ford? I mean, she's just gone global. She's raised finance. She's created a tech business. I mean, she's a powerhouse. So I think you are seeing these women uh, coming through. Um, and this, I, mean, I mean, of course, let's not forget, um, I mean, the um, Natalie Massonet, I mean, what, 15 years ago now, the launch of Netaporty blew everybody away. I mean, so extraordinary. There may be, but maybe series like this is doing, are doing a fantastic job to just put a little bit of a spotlight on people who maybe don't hog the limelight in the way they should. Um, but I think in all things, not just in the gender diversity, it's the, um, so somebody like uh, Jamie Gill from Roxanda, I mean, he's doing an, you know, he's doing a really great job to say, look, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, my background is Indian. I'm the first person in my family to be in a fashion business. I'm also gay. To kind of stand up and be counted and to say, look, you know, this is me or, um, or what Edward and Vanessa are doing at Vogue. All of these things are really important. If you are, if you are not the um, hegemony, is that the right word? Um, you, you maybe have to work a bit harder, not just for yourself to stand out, but for all the people that could come under, under you know, come come after you. Yeah, I think that, and that's a, you know, that's an important point. Is like, is you're having these trailblazers, you know, you're having people who are saying, in actual fact, it doesn't matter, you know where I come from, you know, I have something to offer um, and I'm going to make that offer and people are going to stand up and notice, isn't it? 
Absolutely. Well, you've, but you've also got to make sure that that drawbridge, you know, you've got to cut the links on the drawbridge. That drawbridge has got to stay down. You've got to make that path easy for other people to follow. I think what Farah Store's doing at L magazine is really amazing. She saw during the pandemic an opportunity to get uh, 18-year-olds from, you know, from Stoke-on-Trent or from, you know, from Leicestershire or from uh, Sunderland. So places that don't have that uh, kind of London focus where it's very expensive to speak. But because of digital, she could get those girls editing the magazine and get them access to those creative jobs that they couldn't normally do. So so I think social mobility is also an issue that we've got to work really, really hard at. Mm. And that's, it's quite substantial to see you know, what this year has done to us in terms of responding to issues that we might not have responded to in such a short time frame before. Absolutely. It makes things urgent and important. And I that's a good, that's a good kind of hothouse environment, isn't it, really? Mm. Yeah. So then, I, w- I mean, I was going to ask you about luxury and kind of, you know, how it's changed in five years. But in actual fact, how has it changed in the past six months? Well, I think it's I think six years acceleration in in you know in in the eight or nine months of the uh, uh, of twenty twenty. Um, so the I think digitization has been the has been the key. Uh, luxury has always been very fixed on the kind of live experience, and I still think that you know it is about being human, isn't it? Luxury, it's about beauty and joy and personal contact, and you can't do all of that through uh, through a screen. But I've been seeing such incredible innovation from the brands about making that happen very quickly. Um, first of all, when nobody could really transact at all right at the beginning, so you know, non-essential retail. I mean, that's a definition of luxury wherever there was one. <laughs> Completely. How do I talk to my customers when I can't sell them anything? Or if I'm in an amazing hotel, how do I how do I talk to people? How do I reach out when I can't when they can't travel? So I think the story, you know, the acceleration on storytelling, the richness of that has been really fantastic. And then I think the um, nuts and bolts of digital, of kind of digital, of e-commerce and kind of digital trading has has been extraordinary. So Bain always said that uh, 25% of uh, luxury transactions would take place online by 2025, but I think we'll hit that by the end of 2021. So, um, so that's really that's really interesting. Um, I think an acceleration around sustainability, and I use that in a really wide sense to encompass people as well as planet. Uh, so that has been that's been a big focus. Um, and I think also really addressing the role of joy in people's lives. Um, and then the other thing that struck me was how brands reached out to do what they could in the national effort. So I saw right at the beginning, all around me, that you know CEOs stabilizing their businesses like you know to everything they could to make sure that they continue to have a business and continue to keep people employed um but also what can i what can i do so burberry retooling all of its factories in the uk to make ppe and mulberry did the same and turnbull and Asa did the same for their shirt making factory in gloucestershire um you have the that claridge has opened up their doors to um to the doctors from st mary's paddington because they couldn't go home because it was dangerous for them to go home they'd spread the infection to their family Tuesday the Claridge's, you had the Barclay making 500 meals a day and, you know, the ambulance would kind of go through and you'd pick up your meal from the Barclay. I mean, it's kind of crazy, crazy, but I mean, but really wonderful stuff. What can I, I don't know, even um, 
Miller Harris, which is a lovely new newish brand. So, and Miller Harris thought, well, actually, all you know, old people are on their own. What have we got? Yeah, everybody needs to be. We're just going to send them lots of. We're going to go and work with Age UK and send and send everybody beautiful soap. So, bring in a little bit of pleasure. You know, that kind. What does luxury mean in a time of necessity? Was a really important conversation. Yeah, and all those things make a difference, don't they? I mean, you, you, one doesn't actually think about, um, you know the Claridge's or the Barclay or Miller Harris, you don't think about them doing things like that. Because I suppose the thing that was in the news the most was, of course, Burberry um, reconfiguring their factories. And then, and of course, in Europe, you know, Louis Vuitton making hand sanitizer. It then uh, allows the customer or even potential new customers to think about their, those companies in completely, in completely different ways. Yeah. And I think what was also nice is actually because they most mostly those brands uh, kept it reasonably private as well. They were not press really. I mean, we obviously didn't keep it private. Walpole, we were busy going like, look at this, it's really cool. <laughs> I love your carriages. Um, but but the brands themselves didn't 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 PR it, you know, because it was just something they were doing from the heart to make a difference. And I think that was quite that was quite good. But hopefully it does, you know, these are these are brands with a with a heart that want that mean something to people. Um and if you mean something to people, well, your duty is to is to take that into the community, isn't it? You are there to be kind. Yeah, and I think that's you know, the the times we live in are really much or very much about community you know and especially you know now even probably more so you know we're more concerned about us the environment being trying to be sustainable um than you know just buying stuff chucking stuff out and kind of repeating that motion absolutely in what you have to ask yourself what does what is my responsibility you know, and these these brands are often very, very famous, and with that fame does come a responsibility. What's, um, what what does that what what is that that power has to be used for good? You have to be you have to be doing the right thing. Um, I think that's a real imperative of the business, and that's how you stay in business for hundreds of years and not just three years. You know, you don't have. Uh, a kind of turbo capitalist approach in in luxury, where your your owner takes all the business, <laughs> all the value out of the business. That <laughs> mentioning no names, <laughs> oh, famous example with a big yacht, um, and then and then kind of leaves everybody. In, these are really, you have a responsibility. I mean, I think that's also what I saw very clearly from. There's lots and lots of family businesses in in in, in British luxury. We don't have those big groups like Caring and LVMH and Richemont in the UK. Um, but we do have loads of amazing family businesses. So it's really like, what what can I, what am I doing for the people that work for me? How do I keep those thousand people in Johnson's of Elgin? How do I, you know, how do I make sure that I preserve their jobs in as far as I can? How do I keep my business safe so that I can keep on employing the people that have worked here for, you know, for many years in very highly skilled jobs? That's a really important point because you know, like you say, we don't have those conglomerates. So if you have these small family businesses like Johnson's or many others in, you know, in Hoik or wherever they may be, whether they're knitting or whether they're manufacturing in Leicester or in um, Sheffield, wherever those companies may be, the British luxuriness is very, it's a very different beast to the European, isn't it? It is. It does have its own kind of national characteristics. And I'm not sure that that was ever something I really thought about very hard when I was working 
uh, half as bizarre or or a squire. You know, luxury was was a kind of we you know it was kind of broadly European type of thing. You know, the big luxury brands were were European, and that meant British as well as French and Italian, and you know, and so on. But I think work you having Walpole's very specific lens around as its role as a trade body makes you think about what that difference is. And they, you know, so the the um, structural differences which you which you mentioned absolutely. But there's a kind of philosophical difference as well. Um, there's um, I always think of William Morris as being the the founding father. <laughs> I'm just going to make a case now, Sean, for luxury being actually essentially socialist <laughs> bear with me on this one <laughs> um, but no i think when he says you know have nothing in your house that you do not know to be beautiful or you know or not know to be useful or believe to be beautiful that's the essence of british luxury whereas france is much closer to uh Thierfield gautier who says la pour la art for art's sake it can be very um very high-end and very refined and very opulent all those things in you know in france haute couture you know that stuff in Britain, it's got to have utility. You know, we are the country that invented the uh, the, the trench coat and the Macintosh and the Wellington boot and the cardigan <laughs> and the and the sandwich as well. So there's, you know, there is that there is the kind there is a practical part of it. It's got to work as well as be beautiful and be best in class. Yeah, and it seems to be less frivolous, doesn't it? Just in in the whole nature of it. I think there is. I think that lack of frivolity is really interesting, and it's it's very it's. Um, very astute of you, Sean, if I might say so, that you have brought that up because I think it's one of the real distinguishing characteristics. Um, it's partly that Northern European Protestant sensibility married to the kind of, you know, gorgeous Southern European Catholic oat luxury type, you know, thing going on. I mean, that's always a mix since the Reformation, isn't it? In, in the British spirit, we kind of want things to be amazing and fabulous. We build these beautiful houses and we actually love love things to be fabulous. But at the same time, there is that kind of little Protestant reserve, you know, don't boast, do not boast. You know, <laughs> make it has to be useful, you know, repair it, make it last, you know, make it well, all those, all those things. I think it does speak to something about our kind of national characteristic. And that's not really, I mean, anybody, it doesn't matter where you were, uh, you know, you you can be. Oh, I don't know. You can come from just about anywhere, and you've got you create a British luxury brand in Britain, and you somehow that characteristic goes through it. You don't need to be British to be British. Yeah. The the one thing about luxury, and when you mention the word, everybody's got an opinion, and uh, because oh no, my luxury is this or my luxury is that, and you know, it's it's the 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 one saving grace at a dinner party where you don't know anybody. You can you know you interested in luxury. Oh, I have that, you know. Um, there's always a conversation to be had. But I think the important aspect around trying to define what this may be um, are these characteristics that you've just mentioned. You know, it's not about boasting, it's not about showing, but it's about having things that really mean something. You know, there's an intrinsic quality about the item or service. Yes, and I like um, things that are beautiful and that, uh, you know, have some meaning are, you know, are the things that have that bring us real joy, aren't they? I mean, maybe one way, one way that really um, illuminates it is Savile Row and a tailor-made suit and the kind of the bespoke tailoring skills of this of those incredible uh, people in Savile Row versus haute couture. I mean, that suit's quite a practical thing. I mean, I know we're all you know wearing our pajamas to work at home, but you know, when we're out in the world again, the the, the suit is a real is a real thing. 
And I think there's a spirit of the inventor as well in British luxury. So that, you know, the dinner jacket was, was a British invention uh, by Henry Poole, actually, in the mid, in the 1860 or something like that on Savile Row. And um, uh, I mean, Wedgwood, an amazing inventor. This, you know, it's, full of, it's full of these crazy, fabulous, determined, bloody-minded, doggedly determined inventors. Yeah, I'm just thinking now that you're saying that, I'm just thinking, I mean, not to diss the French band, brands or Italians, but I'm thinking, you know, the, like you say, invention is kind of inherently in in us, in the, Brit in the kind of British psyche, isn't it? I think there's a kind of interesting arrogance there, isn't there? So this is British luxury contradiction. You know, we love, like, don't boast, they kind of be humble, you know, but then nobody can do it as well as I can. Um, I mean the something like Thomas Burberry with his he was I don't know bored of being bored of being wet <laughs> his coat leaked you know so he got on invented a gabardine this kind of whole new fabric and then um, I mean Wedgwood actually Josiah Wedgwood in you know the early the early part of the Industrial Revolution the reason that whole thing came about was because he was really annoyed it really bugged him that the only innovation in in ceramics was done by the chinese 1000 years before nobody had improved on porcelain and he was a chemist he was always you know thinking, i'm gonna make something i'm gonna do it i'm gonna win so he just kept on experimenting and then came up with bone china you know and you could argue that bone china is not as good as porcelain but he was like right okay here's the new thing it's bone china and he got the you know then he got the queen to uh, he made a tea set for queen you know, for the queen and and then could market it as a, so he was very canny, market it as the royal tea set. And then things, uh, you could get things to London. London's always a shop window of luxury, isn't it? Uh, and the factories in Stoke, because the roads are terrible in the, you know, in the middle of the 18th century. So fortunately, he and all his friends invest in canals so you can get the China suit. So that's a very British thing, isn't it? But um, yeah, bloody mindedness, entrepreneurship, creativity, inventiveness. I mean, these are, these are characteristics we should be proud of. You know, you're surrounded by all this, um, you know, this this stuff that is exceptional, really. What what inspires you? Well, I think just the ability to look at, to be able to look at it all, to spend time with these amazing people, um, and to see how they are. This this is kind of the thing that inspires me actually is this relentless pursuit of perfection, which is what another thing that I see in in anybody working in luxury, nothing that I have just done is where I'm going to rest my hat. You know, there is no resting on one's laurels. It's always got to be better. What's the next thing? What's the next thing? What's the best thing? How can I improve on this? And that I find extraordinary and really exciting. And, and I suppose that very kind of strange lens of the pandemic made that very clear. You know, you can't sell. Your business has been closed down by the government. What what can I do? So, you know, you have the Dorchester uh, creating kind of afternoon tea service on wheels, you know, send it on a bike. I love that. Or, you know, Brown's, Brown's Hotel making um, their chef in that lovely restaurant, Charlie's, uh, just putting boxes together for their top customers of the most incredible kind of countryside ingredients, like, you know, and wild garlic and stuff, and then printing it and then writing a recipe and, and sending it as a, as a box. You know, so you, you can't come to my restaurant and do it yourself. Or, I mean, Harrods, which you would think of as being the most traditional conservative of all, of all the great British luxury brands. I mean, it's you know, the most famous corner shop in the world. They've basically launched 
at least three new businesses during the pandemic. You know, they've launched a whole um, digital operation with Farfetch right at, and, you know, right as the pandemic kicked off. They launched uh, the world's first socially distanced department store, outlet store in Westfield. Um, and then they launched the um, a whole new beauty concept. So they went, right, I'm going to innovate. I can't do this. What can I do? I'm going to do that. I love them. I mean, that's what inspires me, Sean. It's just amazing just to watch these people go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I, you know, what we were saying earlier about, you know, having to respond to a situation that we would never have expected to be in. You know, th this is now seven or eight months of kind of, in effect, being locked down and having to respond um, to things that are so different to what they were. How do you think our response has differed to our kind of um, European or American or even Chinese counterparts? Well, I think that's really... That's, that's really tricky, isn't it? Because I have to say that I have totally lost any sense of perspective working as I am from my kitchen. So I'm thinking, China feels very remote. Um, my The chairman of Warpod is Michael Ward, who runs Harris. So um, so that's why I have all these inside inside details about what Harris has been up to. But he he um, they have an important business in, in China, an important customer base in China. So he just spent, um, I think, about four weeks in quarantine going off to launched the new business in Shanghai. And what he said was that, um, you know, that, um, let's say the government, the government in China is, uh, has a license to do things that we perhaps wouldn't be doing in, uh, in, in the UK and Europe. But that response of the government there to lock everything down, in a, you know, and, and you cannot move unless you're, unless the kind of QR code that you get is, is green. You can't get into an office unless it's green. So, um, they have that market has recovered much more quickly. Um, the US market, although it feels really odd to watch it, and the kind of perception is that the pandemic's been handled horribly by Trump. And I'm, you know, I'm I didn't want to cast aspersions, but it does seem it does seem that way. Actually, the um British luxury brands have been doing quite quite well there because the local customer has been very strong and the high-end customer has not. Um, has not has not been affected quite as badly financially as other sectors of the population. So they've been able to, when they're able to spend money, they go and spend money. And I mean, what do you think? I mean, what what's your opinion on kind of the um, the state of luxury brands in the UK? We're seeing so many other corporations. You referred to one earlier who are not um, kind of continuing in their business, so so to speak. We're also seeing issues around the government removing the duty-free um, provision from the UK. I mean, what, what do you think is going to happen? What's your opinion on all these things that are going to have some sort of an impact? So I think, I mean, I think we have got a super, super challenging time. And that's not just about the pandemic. It is about um, things that outside the sector's control, like uh, Brexit, like the removal of duty of you know, tax-free shopping, which is which is kind of connected. So there's there's a lot of really really big challenges for the sector, and I think um, McKinsey certainly predict British luxury to recover slightly later than uh, you know than French or Italian or you know or you know or, uh, European European luxury brands. And I don't I don't know whether that will happen because I think one of the things that we really learned during the pandemic is that. The degree of uncertainty is so high that things that look impossible now can be actually okay and vice versa. 
But I think the, I think, I mean, it's a sector that was worth £48 billion uh, up until the beginning of the pandemic. And it was growing at nearly 10% every single year. So very, you know, kind of high growth, very successful business, very focused on exports. So 80% of what's produced in the sector is in, in the UK is for, is for export. Um, very strong draw for international tourists as well. Which is why the VAT res, uh, VAT, VAT res is a technical, not very exciting term for tax-free shopping. What is so important, and I think so. I think some of these things will have to be ironed out, and in a way, that's one of the that's one of the ways in which Walpole is important for its members, because we go off and we have those fights uh, with government. We do that lobbying. We keep issues that are relatively niche, like tax-free shopping, alive in the press. And I think there's been a thousand nearly a thousand pieces of uh, you know media coverage around that single issue in the last three months so so that's you know so that's we go off and have those battles and I'm you know that passion I have and the and the uh, the kind of output of being so inspired by all the people in those brands is that I am I am the Bodicea of British luxury I am there in my chariot I'm fighting for these you know for the rights of these people because I think these are the jewel and the crown of British business. They are creative and they are a, a model of responsible capitalism, not kind of awful turbo capitalism. You know, they are, you know, they are people who have really high, you know, a really high moral compass and good, good values and create beautiful things and are very, very committed to keeping people in employment and skilled employment. So I'm going to go out there and battle as hard as I can. And I'm sure, that, you know, the kind of the representation you make extends far beyond um, the 250 companies who are members of Walpole. I was in a conversation with the Creative Industries Federation the other day, and there was discussion about, of, of obviously, the creative industries and how little regard the government appeared to have for the creative industries, of which you know the luxury, luxury, fashion, um, automobile service kind of provides hospitalities contribute so much to the economy. And one wonders why um, that is the case. How can a government be short, so short-sighted when the impact is so obvious? Yes, I, I tried to think of a really tough way to put this. I think actually in some in some parts of the government, so the uh, actually the Department of International Trade really really gets it. So they get actually they do get the value of the creative industries. They really get the value of some of you know of the. Um, are the kind of iconic British luxury brands that we have because they understand how important that is for uh, for export and for and within a trade deal, you know, you you're these are the kind you know, of amazing whiskies and the cashmeres and the beautiful shoes and the great suits, all that kind of stuff that we produce here. Whilst it's in the cars, whilst they're quite, you know, they're not enormous businesses compared to I don't know uh, Boeing or ICI or Airbus or you know any of the big uh, international business. They they are they're important in those trade deals. They really understand the value ex, of exports. There does need to be uh, a more joined up conversation within within government, and certainly we're really we're really keen to have that because I think these brands can be are absolutely um, can are uh, the secrets of the recovery, both uh, in terms of driving post Brexit trade and also driving the uh, the pandemic recovery. Um, we can do an awful lot to help. So we are the solution. And that's my job to kind of convince the government that we are the solution and not, you know, and not the problem. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, you know, I suppose, you know, 250 companies is is considerable and they are the window 
of you know of of the United Kingdom. I mean, or Great Britain. I mean, that's what people see. They see Rolls Royce. They see you know Burberry, um, and all these other enormous, well, enormous and smaller companies. I mean, some people tend to shop for smaller luxury um, products from lesser known um, uh, manufacturers or producers because that gives them. You know, there's, I suppose, kudos of finding something that nobody else has. It's kind of going back to the grand tour of the 18th century. You know, we go to a find something, take it back. Oh, wow, where'd you get that? Yeah, well, that's a really special thing, isn't it, about having so many independently owned companies in, in this country. If you're a global traveller, you want something that's very special that you don't really, you can't find on every kind of, you know, luxury high street, so to speak. So you can find those discovery things something that's specially made or very, you know, particularly beautiful or um, for the, you know, for the discerning. For the discerning, absolutely. The way people shop must have changed then. Oh, it was obviously changed. Um, how have your kind of, your members been dealing with that significant shift? I know we referred earlier to, you know, people are shopping, you know, maybe shopping online. They might, you know, be buying less. They might be buying differently. What is, what's the kind of the trend that you've seen that's been the most impactful? Or had the most impact. Um, it's it is really interesting. I think I mean ob- you know we obviously you know e-commerce has gone has gone mad. But um, the really interesting thing is whenever the whenever the shops are opened up again, the customer comes comes back. So uh, you know stores like Fortnum and Mason and Harrods are are, are doing within you know within thirty percent of what they would be doing this time last year. So. Given there aren't any international customers, that's that's pretty amazing. So it does recover very quickly. But what we're seeing is that um, people are putting the very you know the kind of the special stuff into the shop. So the product that you might buy kind of quite easily you can get online, but then there'll be a limited edition or something spectacularly creative or just very you know very beautiful that you really need to see in real life and you need to communicate that using i mean the gorgeousness of instagram and all that stuff but then you go and find it and you experience it in store so i think what i'm looking at is businesses working hard to make sure that that when you've made the effort to go to the shop because it is a bit of an effort isn't it to travel anywhere and to go am i you know, going to be crowded am i going to wear my mask it's going to be a bit hot i need to all that kind of faff uh, to make sure that it's a really beautiful rich experience i mean the that welcome that you get when you walk into fort mason it's like being greeted by one of your family i mean i've never seen people apart from my mum so overjoyed to see me to see me somewhere it was really it really touched me it was lovely so i think that human the human experience is really important but also in you know retail is part of an ecosystem it doesn't exist on its own it really depends on having the hotels and restaurants open it really depends on the creative industries you need the theatres and the galleries and the museums and the opera houses to be open as well because this is part of a kind of whole you know kind of whole pleasurable life you know you work really really hard and you've thought about something that you really want you want to go and have that concert I don't know go to the go to the theatre with your mum but maybe before that you'll you know, you've, you and she at special, special occasion, you're going to have afternoon tea at Claridge's. And it's got to be, it's going to be memorable, isn't it? You're, these things create memories, but it is, it's past something. Doesn't Everything is joined up, nothing exists in isolation. And I think that that's, that's one of the challenges of the pandemic. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think that's right. And 
you know, to, to, talking about that experience of going into Fortnum's or going into Claridge's, now that there's so there, um, so few people who are venturing out into the shops, or less people, shall I say, um, the experience is completely different because you are given that much more attention. So this idea of luxury is... Um, is 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 exacerbated by the experience you're getting because it's you're not one of 50 people standing in line to buy oh i don't know some truffles you're probably one of four people waiting and somebody standing next to you telling you about those truffles which is different the experience uh in in store should be it should be elevated but i think what it does is it emphasizes what what luxury really puts a spotlight on what luxury is about and it is it should be about something special it isn't all the things we've been talking about, it's not disposable, it's not every day. It's a it is a, a kind of something that makes a makes a memory. And I and I think what I've seen is brands working really hard to make that um enchanting for their customers. How can I delight you and surprise you and make you feel super happy you made the effort? And we love to be delighted and surprised. <laughs> yes. I mean it's so nice, isn't it? You feel uplifted. It kind of does when I ventured out, um, when you know, as soon as as soon as anything's unlocked, that pleasure of going of going in and seeing something, of being being somewhere. I mean, Fortnum and Masons is such a is such a good experience of that. But the yeah, the hearing the stories, that's just been a lovely thing. And the, the conversation that we're having is kind of um, sparking all these very different. Um, kind of thoughts because i'm thinking that there's nowhere else in the world you get that experience that you get when you walk into fortnum's or when you walk into claridge's it doesn't matter where if you're going to a five-star hotel in um i don't know new york or hong kong or wherever it's it's not the same is it do you think we think that because we we have that kind of strange sense of national pride <laughs> you know it's kind of our it's our we're doing it well so we're going to cheer extra hard I don't, I, because I think it's very different. You know, when uh, w the last trip I did was to New York, in fact. Um, and sad, the sad bit of that is that I went into Barney's the day before it finally shut down. But the other is I went into Bergdorf's. It's not the same experience as going into Bergdorf's as it is going into um, Harrods, for example. Or I do, I mean, I do think we do... Uh, luxury retail really really well here so um, I mean you know Harris is the most famous corner shop Selfridges is really extraordinary and it's national liberty what a beautiful shop that is Fulham Mason I mean there's a very those very um, and they're very high end so they have they're protected from some of the things that have really undone uh, House of Fraser and, and Debenhams um, I think it's a really it's a really special special thing um, you could say that, I mean, actually, even uh, Nest Porter and Farfetch, you think about the digital equivalents, they're also kind of best in class. We are a nation of shopkeepers. <laughs> Napoleon was right. I want to do, um, I know we've got to wrap up um, shortly, but I would, also the thing I wanted to ask you about um, and get your opinion on was around kind of sustainability and environmental issues, because that is, you know, it's everywhere. You know, companies are recycling, they repurposing, they... Um, you know, doing all sorts of things to um, not only improve the environment, but to kind of, um, you know, 
improve our lives in the ways in which we kind of consume and use things. And I was just wondering, within a luxury context, how you think that's manifesting itself? So I think, I'm, I mean, I mentioned that we launched the um, the British Luxury Sustainability Manifesto, and we did, that was um, the result of six months of work with McKinsey. So it's a very, there's lots and lots and lots of different kinds of uh, businesses in, in, in Walpole, from, from cars and, you know, and yachts to um, shoemakers, you know, it's very, it is, it is, it is broad, but what, are, what were the things that, what were the measures that we could put in place by which we could um, make that whole sector best in class. I think the um, the responsibility that those businesses feel is really profound, and I think it's not you know it's uh, it's partly about being the custodian of your business. You're not you know if you've I mean I mean what I mentioned Lock and Coat entirely with the 1676. The same family is still running that business. So the same family is running that business. You don't want the planet to burn on your watch, do you? So um, it's kind of perhaps an extra responsibility to make to make that work. But there's really interesting innovation going on in in all sorts of different ways. I think if we think about the um, repair part of it, the I mean, you've always been able to get I don't know, your shoes repaired or your, you know, like the church. You know, we've mentioned churches. They will always take them back to, you know, to repair them for you. And Mulberry have always done that. And we mentioned, I mean, you know, um, so the expectation is that, um, your brand will be able to repair it, but there's new brands like the Restory coming, you know, coming through. Who, um, if you've got some beautiful pair of shoes, your I don't know your Milano Blahniks, and they're you know they're looking a bit they're looking a bit wrecked. You don't want to trust them to somebody, or your I don't know your Chanel handbag's the wrong colour. It's become a bit discolored, you know, bit bit manky. They will take it and make it look new again. And I think that coming through as a whole new business is really interesting. There's quite a lot of innovation happening around the um, sharing economy and the rental and uh, and kind of re um, resale. Um, Mulberry have got um, if you you know if you you might you might love your handbag forever, but you might choose that somebody else could love it even more than you, so you can take it back to the kind of the Mulberry Exchange thing, and they'll give you credits against a new handbag, and then that handbag will go off to. Somerset for the artisans to repair it, and then it'll go back into their um, into their special showroom, and with you know with the vintage bags and things. So, I think the uh, kind of reuse, repair, recycle uh, are there's innovation there, and also a very big focus. But I also think that um, reduce thing is an important part of luxury. So don't I see what I see coming from both the businesses, but also from the customer is this. Um, kind of mindfulness over material, over the material. So, do I do I want it badly enough to be able to use it over a period of time? Is it something that I'm going to invest in and not, you know, and not and not throw away? So, I think it's I think that mindfulness about you know the 140 million pounds worth of goods that go into landfill, clothes actually that go into landfill. I mean, that's a fast fashion problem, not a luxury fashion problem. But we're part of the whole ecosystem. So, so those kind of five five tenets of consumer consumer tenets of sustainability um, refuse don't do that so much, <laughs> but reduce, repair, recycle. Um, there's innovation happening there, but also um, also just a kind of a general way of doing business. I think we can. I think we. Can, I think British luxury can be the global benchmark for luxury uh, sustainability. Mm. And I wonder if that's you know, but it's partly 
do you think because some of the companies are, are smaller, so they have the capacity to be able to do that? I'm going to answer that question by saying a helpful yes and no. Um, if you've got those resources mean that you can you can do lots of um, innovating and you can put in the systems that will will help you go plastic free quite quickly. Um, if you're smaller, you may not have the resources to be able to do that, but you can be very nimble. So one of the things that we're doing with the uh, the way Warpole is approaching sustainability is to use that convening power. And so the uh, um, the things that Burberry, for example, have learned, they're then able to share with the smaller brands. So you have a kind of a levelling up agenda and you kind of make that ecosystem work really hard together. So already we've got an all... Um, a number of brands working on a whole project completely, you know, they're all competitive, but they're all working on a project to reduce um, waste in, in, you know, in, pack, in packaging. So, uh, I mean, it's a really practical thing to do. And you can do so much more if you're working together than you can if you're an individual. Yeah, and that goes back to what we were saying earlier about community. You know, it's this community that is, well, hopefully striving to reduce that waste um, and to kind of create better products that have less negative impact on us. Yes, I think you um, you have to see yourself as part of a community. I mean, Walpole is you know is is a community in in its very essence, and I do think that we is a lesson that we've um, had very you know very clearly forced on us that we don't no, none of us work in work in isolation. You have to be responsible to your to your neighbour and to your your community, that is the role. The role of the citizen is a, is an is an important conversation to have, and that starts. It doesn't matter whether you're a luxury brand or a mass market brand. Actually, that's you know that's how do you how do you operate within society and not selfishly. Um, on that note, I I, I can't leave this um, conversation without asking you what your luxury is. What well, my luxury is? Well, I am I am absolutely. There are two things. So my ultimate luxury is which I couldn't do this year is to is to go to Glyndebourne. I love opera. I love dressing up. They, you know, the the kind of the English the Kent, you know, the kind of no, it's Sussex rather, isn't it? I don't know why I said it was Kent. The, the Sussex countryside is so beautiful to listen to extraordinary, I mean to world-class music and then have a picnic with champagne all dressed up. I mean it's so gorgeous. It could not be more lovely. But I suppose more my everyday luck. We always ask people, what your, what's your luxury under a tenner? And I suppose um, mine is, is a glass of, is a glass of, uh, of single malt whiskey. So maybe a, the Macallan is one that I'm particularly fixed on at the moment because the craftsmanship of that, of that, of just what is in that glass. I mean, you know, it's probably is about a tenner a glass actually by the time, you know, I'm thinking what the cost of the whole bottle is. But, um, but it's, you know, time, you're spending a little bit of time to yourself. You're thinking about that relationship between the person that's made it with love. And then, you know, that that's kind of transferred to you in the glass. I mean, it's kind of, and I love Scotland. So that's kind of everything, really. That craftsmanship, the quality, that time in a glass, a little bit of whiskey. That's my, uh, that's my, so I gave you two there. One very, um, very, very uh, high concept, high, you know, elevated thing and then my uh and then my more more everyday thing the, the you know the single malt whiskey well what i love about both of them is they're so quintessentially british 
Uh, very, yeah, very, very British. I mean, I, I mean, I, you know, I have a great passion for all things French, Italian, and you know, and I would, and I love, and I love a ride in a good German car. But, but yeah, those are, they are quite British. Well, international musicians at Glyndebourne. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Glyndebourne is it's an amazing, um, um, an amazing afternoon, evening out, um, as you say, dressed up having a picnic on the lawn, not falling into the ha-ha. And, um... <laughs> yeah, I know. It's heavy. I mean, it's really worth, I mean, it is an arm and a leg. And you just really, I mean, I save up for it. And, and it's, you know, it's worth every penny. I just feel absolutely fantastic. So there we go. That's, uh, that's my luxury. Helen Brocklebank, this has been a fantastic um, conversation. And um, I thank you very much for your time. It's been um insightful and inspirational oh sean it's been so lovely talking to you i could talk to you all <laughs> afternoon thank you very much for indulging me no thank um, you and uh, i hope to see you again thank you very much good luck with the series thank you and thanks to our partners intellect books and thank you for listening join us next time on the in pursuit of luxury podcast